It's now 6.04 p.m. We will call the January the 23rd planning and zoning meeting to order at 6.05 p.m. We'll start out with our invocation and it will be led this evening. Matt, can we stand? Okay, I'd like to welcome everyone back this evening, all the commissioners. I hope your holiday season was fantastic. And looks like we all survived the ice that we had this January. So we're ready to go back to work. So we will start out with item number 24-5836, approval of our minutes from the December the 4th, 2023 planning and zoning meeting. I'll give you all an opportunity to review those and then I'll call for a motion. I move to approve. Have a motion to approve. Commissioner Shaw. Second. Second by Vice Chairman Axon. Please cast your votes. Motion carries 6-0 with one abstention. Thank you so much. We now move to item number six on the agenda, citizen comments. Citizens wishing to address the commission on non-public hearing agenda items and items not on the agenda may do so at this time. Once the business portion of the meeting begins, only comments related to public hearings will be heard. All comments are limited to five minutes. In order to be recognized during the citizens' comments or during a public hearing, applicants included, please complete a blue appearance card located at the entry to the chambers and present it to the planning secretary. We have no cards tonight for citizen comments, so we will move to item number seven, our public hearings. Agenda item number 24-5837, public hearing to consider proposed amendments of chapter 155 of the Mansfield Code of Ordinances to re revise section 155.054B, permitted use table, permitting donation boxes as an accessory use by right in the 2F, MF1, MF2, OP, C1, C2, C3, I1, and I2 districts and to amend regulations in sections 155.099B40 related to donation boxes OA number 24-001. Mr. Alexander. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Good evening, Planning and Zoning Commissioners. 
The request in front of you is for an ordinance amendment to donation boxes. I believe that this has come to you maybe once or twice before. And the idea behind these recent revisions is to improve clarity and to ensure enforceability, not just by the Department of Planning and Development Services, but also that of regulatory compliance. If you'll recall previously when we came to you with an amendment to the regulations dealing with donation boxes, it was to require a specific use permit in the OP, the C1, the C2, and the C3 zoning districts, and then to allow it as a permitted use by right in the I-1 zoning district. What we are proposing this evening is to allow it in the 2F, MF1, and MF2, which are our highest intensity residential zoning districts, and then allowing it by right in the OP, C1, C2, C3, I-1, and I-2 zoning districts. And part of that is because of the updated standards that we are proposing for the same under section 155.099B, and that deals with now restricting locations for donation boxes to the rear yard and side yards and prohibiting them from being between buildings and streets. Also ensuring that there's a clear definition between their location distance-wise between open space, there is a definition for that in section 155.012, and then passive space, which is defined and more aptly described in section 155.092, dealing with aesthetics and passive space. Some of the other provisions that are proposed under these updates include that no parcel of land can have more than one donation box unless a parcel of land has more than 300 feet of road frontage. Uh, multiple use developments is still considered to be one contiguous lot. So an example of that would be the shops abroad. That would still be considered one lot. And then no two donation boxes shall be less than 300 feet apart. Again, that's ensuring that there's appropriate distance between them. What is new is that a donation box cannot be within 75 feet of any parcel that's zoned as agriculture or our various single-family residential zoning districts. And the purpose behind that is just ensuring that we protect the residential character and welfare of those areas. What has also changed, too, as proposed is that remember there were a number of thoroughfares that we had where donation boxes could not be located along given the fact that a lot of those thoroughfares run through OP, C1, C2, C3, I1, and I2 zoning districts, what we're proposing is that no donation box be located within 500 feet of U.S. Highway 21, uh, 287, pardon me, U.S. Business Highway 287, and State Highway 360. And that includes Toll Road 360 because State Highway 360 is a frontage road. So what we want to make sure of is that we're providing the best image possible of Mansfield to those who would be willing to invest within our community. Advertising will still be prohibited, but each donation box would have the ability to have a name and contact information of the property owner, property manager, or owner of the donation box that allows for easier access for us in a department of regulatory compliance to go out and enforce any concerns. 
what is different too is that the donation box cannot exceed 175 cubic feet or 72 inches in height. And of course, everything else pretty much remains the same as currently written, but we did clarify about colors that it can only be painted or stained in a neutral or earthen tone. Department of Planning and Development Services does recommend approval of the proposed text amendments as presented. These have been presented to the legal department for review and consideration does pass legal muster. And with that, I'll pause to answer any questions the Planning and Zoning Commission may have. Thank you, Mr. Alexander. Uh, questions for Mr. Alexander to my right? Should we bring him up now or wait to the poll here? You can go ahead and ask the question now if you choose. Okay. Uh, Mr. Alexander, the, the, the way the ordinance is right now, multifamily is not a place where a donation box can go, correct? That's correct. And this one is allowing them in multifamily areas. Is that what I'm getting here? Yes, in the MF1 and MF2. And if I may, uh, Vice Chair Axon, that a lot of our multifamily is within PD plant development districts and as currently structured within our ordinance and as currently proposed, it would not be allowed within those PDs unless it's written in by the developer. I'm just curious why, why the change? Why do we need to add these in, in, in general? To update one, and that allows for improved enforceability and flexibility with the Department of Regulatory Compliance, and also ensuring that we're not infringing on the First Amendment with freedom of speech with regards to charitable giving. Could that last statement apply to any section of the city? It could, but again, there is certain zoning discretions that communities have. And again, we want to kind of preserve those single family residential areas by ensuring that these don't proliferate those areas. Okay. I was just curious. I didn't know if there was a concern raised by certain folks in the multifamily district areas of Mansfield or what the benefit was to make this change. So, all right. Appreciate the information. Yes, sir. Questions for Mr. Alexander to my left. Okay, thank you, sir. I, thank you. I'm sorry, go sorry. ahead, Commissioner Thompson. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Didn't realize it was on. Um, I'm just curious as how adding the additional locations is improving and enhancing the city. We have several locations where you can go and drop off already. We have local churches that provide charity um, options like this, so I don't. Uh, I don't understand. I need to understand how this enhances the city, regardless of location. So to you, your question, not say necessarily that it enhances kind of the aesthetic value, but it does address some concerns about infringing on freedom of speech due to the First Amendment. But also, too, it does provide some additional standards with regards to location and color and those before weren't there. Remember in the current iteration of these provisions, they can be in the front yard. So we're doing our best to try to screen them from view, but not place them in the area where they're totally inaccessible or in an unsecure location. Okay. That US Constitution, it can be tricky sometimes. <laughs> All right, enough said. I have one more follow-up question. <laughs> Sir. 
I just want to be clear from your statement earlier, for the new PDs, this does not apply. I mean, they, they're prohibited from those Correct. kind of developments. Okay. So someone would have to come in and write that in. Okay, thank you. Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. Okay, we will open up the public hearing at 6.16 p.m. And I don't believe we have cards for this particular agenda item, so we will close the public hearing at 6.17 p.m. And we'll open it up for additional questions or comments from the commissioners. And if none, we will ask for a motion. Let me add one comment, and that's that, uh, Mr. Alexander, I think you and your team have done a great job of staying within the parameters of what can and cannot be done regarding these particular items. And we do understand that sometimes there are things that we have to do and decisions that have to be made that may not be the ones we typically want to make a certain way, but based on guidelines and standards, we have to make those particular decisions. So I want to thank you and your team for taking the opportunity to go back and take another look at this and just ensure that we're doing the right thing and making the right decisions here, especially for the protection of the city. So thank you, sir. Call for a motion. Move to accept. I have a motion to approve by Commissioner Goodwin. Second, Second by Commissioner Moses. Any questions? Okay, please cast your votes. That agenda item passes 7-0. Thank you so much. We'll move on to agenda item number 24-5825. Public hearing on a change of zoning from PR pre-development district to PD plan development district for a mixed lot single family residential development on 32.352 acres out of the James McDonald survey Abstract number 997, Tarrant County, Texas, located at 1970 North Main, Kenny Family Living Trust, owner, Arcadia Realty Corp, developer, ZC number 23-018. Mr. Rodriguez. All right. Thank you, Commissioners. Uh, Artie Wheaton Rodriguez, Assistant Director of Planning and Development. Um, you already read out the caption, so as stated, this is a, or a request for a change of zoning from PR, pre-development district, to PD, plan development district. Uh, this is a 32.52-acre site. Um, looking at the aerial here, uh, I'll just point out some of the landmarks. You can see that uh, Woodland Estates is the neighborhood to the north. Um, the planned uh, development for Dolce Vita would be the vacant property to the east. Uh, you can see the Performing Arts Center as well as Ben Barber, uh, the Bus Barn. Um, there's a little bit of the Pickle Farm there, uh, as well as a fire station and water tower uh, immediately adjacent to the, to the development. Um, real quick, you can see this property does front on Main Street and is just north of the intersection of Debbie. Um, here's the existing... Uh, zoning map that shows all of the uh, the surrounding zoning you can see that the school property is zoned single family even though it is used for institutional uses uh, the pd to the east is the uh, aforementioned 
uh, Dolce Vita project. It's a single family development um, project has not started at this time. Uh, you can see 2F as well as additional PR to the north. And then when you go to the west of North, um, yeah, when you go to the west of North Main, uh, you can see a mix of different residential type um, zoning. Um, I'm going to get into a, a much larger image of the, the site, but I just wanted to go over some of the, the quick details of the site. It's a 32.352 acre site. Um, the PD does call for uh, 215 homes. Uh, approximately 4.3 acres of that is open space. That's 13.42% of the overall uh, land in the, the development. Uh, this is a mixed alley and front entry, entry garage development. I'll go into some of those details when I blow this up just a little. Uh, and then uh, there are multiple civic spaces. Uh, those are created with different mews, uh, paseos, as well as active lawns and play areas. Uh, when I'm when I get into some of the details for the site, you can see there's pretty much three colors of development here. Uh, you can see the yellow uh, lots. Those are the largest, lot, the largest uh, set of lots, and those are called the town, township lots. Uh, those are typically 50 to 55 uh, feet wide. Uh, the 55-foot wide lots are the ones that will be on the corner treatments and those types of things. Um, these are characterized by detached single-family homes. Uh, these are front entry garages along that uh, outer rim. As you go into the, the core of the development, the center of the development, you can see two different shades. Uh, the the uh, more orange type shade is a, a, a type of lot called a casita lot. Um, as the name would describe, this is a small home, right? So these are detached single family homes, uh, but they are found on 35 and 38 um, foot wide lots. Uh, these are accessed by, by rear alleys, um, and we'll go into some of the details with elevations as we get into to those. Uh, and then finally, the more pink salmon type color uh, is the townhome lots. Those are anywhere from the range of 25, 30, and 35 feet just based on their location. Um, and again, those also um, either front green spaces or, or uh, front roadways, but they are accessed through the alley. So just to put this, just to discuss this a little bit more, the yellow lots are the only front entry garage lots, and we'll get into some of the details uh, as we get into those elevations. Um, oh, as we're still on this image, I wanted to point out some of the items uh, that, that we've discussed in the past. Um, you can see that there are some blue asterisk and, and red asterisk lots. Uh, these are lots where uh, the side of the home faces a green space or the side of the home faces a roadway. And in those instances, we do require secondary frontages on them. And so that's why they're indicated by those, those marks. Uh, the overall site, if you look at it today, uh, you can see it's a very heavily treed site. Um, a lot of times whenever you're looking at developing a site and you see it so heavily treed, you try to think about where those areas you can save some of those trees. I've uh, placed an image of the, the existing drainage map there to show you some of the contours and some of the ways that the development currently goes. Um, and because of, of the, the existing drainage, uh, the developer is proposing to uh, remove the trees. We'll get into some of the details with uh, the tree replacement that is being done. Uh, but if you look at this, 
based on the, the way the final grading is going to, going to ultimately look, uh, we've asked the developer to provide us with a sightline um, graphic, and that's what's shown there at the bottom. Uh, you can see that the site does have to be built up in order to develop uh, the way they're showing. Um, I'll get into some of those the details about the trees now because I have them written here on my notes. But uh, from the overall standpoint of uh, trees that will be replaced within this site plan, we'll look at the landscape plan here on the next slide. Uh, there will be 303 canopy trees that are planted with this development. Most of those are found as street trees or trees within the green spaces. Uh, that accounts for a mature canopy of about 15.20% of the overall site. Here is that landscape plan. So you can see as the developer has placed trees, uh, both for, uh, as I said, streetscape trees and then open space trees. So again, uh, if I was saying streetscape trees, you could see all those trees that line uh, the roadways. Uh, you can see the green space trees that come in in these areas as well as those areas along uh, muses or, or, or paseos as well in the development. Um, the overall development provides a, a pretty detailed outline of, of the roadways within the development. Uh, I've tried to do a little bit different color coding than what's found in your packet just to sort of uh, show where these are. Uh, but you can see um, I've placed a color in these areas and it's indicated on the map uh, where those are as well. So you can see that you have a, a much larger divided boulevard type roadway uh, at the entryway. Um, the typical internal streets are all of those shown in purple on that detail on the right hand side. Uh, the paseos and green spaces of course are shown with the, the shade of green. There's sort of a brick red color that indicates the, the muses. Um, and uh, a, a gold color that indicates the areas where the alleys are. As we get into some of the elevations, uh, these are the township lots. So these are that outer rim yellow lots. Uh, you can see that these are front facing garages. Uh, the developer has provided different types of elevations. I haven't provided everything that was in the packet. So there might be a couple of them that I didn't include here. All of those are to be included with the overall uh, PD. Uh, but really I wanted to just show a, a bit of the character. Uh, you can see that some of the ways the developer intends on, on uh, utilizing those front entry garages. In some instances there will be a percentage that is uh, split doors as you see in that top left picture. Uh, but all of these uh, uh, current elevations that you see in front of you have either a porch or a stoop. Uh, and that's going to be important as we get into conditions later on. The casitas, so again, the smaller homes, those homes that were um, the orange color on the site plan. Uh, you can see these are all rear entry garages. Uh, and they have a lot of the same character and detail that those uh, larger town, uh, township lots had. Um, you can see some of the frontage standards here. This is a much smaller uh, entryway being shown, uh, but there are uh, sort of side porches, um, porches that wrap the entire front facade of the development. Uh, but again, these are all of those, those lots that were orange within the overall site. 
Um, and then finally, the townhome lot, the developer has provided us with, I believe, four in our packet. Um, but you can see I've, I've included two, so you have the French eclectic as well as the craftsman style uh, townhomes that they are, are planning on utilizing. I wanna make sure that I also point out that they've provided these side elevations that show you that these, again, are rear access. These homes are connected either with a breezeway or connected to the garage uh, as shown here. Um, through continued discussions with the developer, we have talked about including uh, in their final product uh, other types of elevations that show things that we've talked about. Uh, this is the Halcyon development in Alpharetta. Um, and uh, some of the elements here that we wanna make sure that we're we're continuing to show on our developments as we move forward are things like door yards. So this is a good image that shows those door yards that come off of uh, the sidewalk areas. Uh, the door yards are of course those little private uh, yard areas in front of the homes. Uh, we've also shown the developer this development. This is uh, the Foch Street development in the city of Fort Worth. Uh, this development here, uh, one of the reasons why we've always um, loved this development is that, that the, the third story terrace that they have uh, that comes over, right, activates the street in a different way. Although you still have the frontage there with the stoop, uh, you have this area that, that is activated on, on that story. And then finally, um, this image here that we've seen from Serenby uh, that shows the second story uh, balconies as well as just sort of those articulations that, that need to happen in between units so that you actually feel like you're looking at separate units as opposed to much larger buildings. Um, as written in the staff report, uh, if this project is approved, the Department of Planning and Development Services would encourage, the con encourage consideration of the following conditions. Uh, there are six of them, and I'll try not to read them verbatim, uh, but the first is to require all the township lots to have a porch or a stoop. Uh, those are the types of frontages that we've asked uh, most of our developments to, to have, um, especially from a single family standpoint. Um, the second condition there is that there's proposed language uh, in the PD uh, that requires that all exterior walls of a single building shall maintain a uniform level of quality and materials and de detailing, including trim. Uh, this is a, a, a ordinance way for us to write a term that we've said before, which is foresighted architecture, right? We've talked about foresighted architecture being important so that you don't have sort of dead areas um, where design allows. And so the developer will, will go through a couple of the, the um, sort of things moving forward that they're looking at uh, in order to address this item. Uh, the third item is that the proposed language for the PD Plan Development District be revised to reflect language that accessory dwelling units be designed and constructed in accordance with um, the Mansfield Zoning Ordinance. So again, uh, that's a condition that we'd like to, to see on this one. Uh, fourth, that the proposed language for the PD development identify and define uh, building story and height a little bit better. Uh, including that there's a minimum height of the first story as measured from the finished floor to the finished ceiling at nine feet. I believe that's currently in the ordinance, but some of these other distinctions about building height and story height, uh, we just needed to, to get a little more detail on. Uh, fifth, that the proposed language for the PD include additional details for stucco. Uh, really, um, 
there are different things that people call stucco, and we just want to make sure that we, we have the definition uh, so that we can make sure that that's a masonry-type finish as opposed to uh, something that you would hear more often as being called EFIS or those kinds of things. Some folks called it, call that stucco as well. And so we just wanted to make sure we, we create a good distinction there. And finally, that all retaining walls were visible from the thoroughfare or open space be constructed out of brick, stone, or faced with brick or stone veneer. Uh, I will be available for any questions. Uh, the developer does have a presentation after me. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Rodriguez. The developer is prepared. You can come up at this time. If you would, please state your name and your address for the record. Yes. Uh, Alex Hodge, and uh, my address is 4323 Gilbert, uh, Dallas, Texas, unit number two. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen of the PNZ Council, uh, tonight I'm excited to present to you uh, Kenny Park. How do I? Okay, there we go. Kenny Park is a community program towards walkability and open space connectivity. The architecture is tuned towards traditional and traditional uh, transitional styles uh, in this special neighborhood. Uh, before we get going, I wanted to give a special thank you to Jason and Artie working hand-in-hand -hand with Arcadia uh, to get this neighborhood to where it is today. Our goal was to translate the city's vision for this tract of land and to provide a neighborhood that evokes quality and timelessness. We hope this can be used as a template for future neighborhoods in Mansfield. Kenny Park is... 32 acres, uh, already kind of went through this a minute ago on the location of the tract. Uh, one interesting fact about this site is, and I'll use the screen here, as you're going from here to here, uh, that's about a 50 foot grade change. So from that part of the tract to the other, it's about a five story building. So it's a really difficult uh, side to work with grade-wise, and so uh, that being said, we're really happy with where we've come out so far. Um, oh, I gotta clear that. And so this is kind of a cross-section that shows where our proposed grading is versus the existing grid, um, and that's kind of the point I was showing across that shows the 50-ish uh, feet of grade change. As we continue on, um, this, uh, I was always told the best way to get a feel for these communities is to uh, pretend like you're walking the community. So I kind of wanted to do that exercise with y'all and hopefully we can use our imaginations a little bit tonight. Um, so this is Loma Linda in Highland Park. This is uh, along Mockingbird. And this is part of the inspiration for our main entry. Um, our main entry has a decorative wall along with a nice entry monument, uh, street pavers, and some other nice landscaping. So as we continue this walk, uh, let's walk down to the first, what I like to call heart of this neighborhood. There's two hearts, and I like to think of the uh, Paseo and other pedestrian walking spaces is the veins that get the pedestrians to each location. So 
as you come down, say you're driving, you're this guy right here. I feel like Troy Aikman a little bit, but so say you're coming down here, you have this view terminus on a nice uh, structure here. Um, and say, as we continue to walk down this line, um, you get a really nice terraced uh, ground covered area and say, we continue this way. Uh, we have a little fire pit that you can look out on. Maybe your friends are drinking some wine, uh, watching the kids play soccer in this field. And uh, we really worked hard with the grades, like I was saying. So uh, to get this field as usable as it is um, was really good job on our engineers. So we're excited about that. Um, this is kind of my favorite spot of this plan because we're right about here now. And so uh, as you're walking through this first pedestrian gateway, you're looking back, you're seeing your friends over here, over here, and then uh, you're looking down this long view that way. And so when you're looking down that view, this is kind of what you get. You're walking through this little trellis and you're looking towards your next uh, seating space. And so as you're walking towards the next seating space, you have uh, two more trellises that you'll walk through and then you'll enter the next place where maybe your friends are smoking a cigar hanging out, you know, doing their thing. And uh, so this gets us to the uh, Green Street. And as we continue up, this is a structure that we would use or something similar to this in that space um, and more furniture than what they have shown here. But that's the gist of it. And so as we continue along the Green Street, we get to this point. Um, right up here. And so this is the other heartbeat of this neighborhood. Um, it's a very programmed space and uh, we really like how it turned out. Um, so another very usable park. We have some play equipment and um, I also like that we have all these homes looking onto the park. So you get to look at the beautiful architecture and uh, you kind of have the eyes on the green, so. This is what you can kind of get a feel for for how this park will turn out. And so basically, we came from this side, walked up to here, and now we're looking out onto the park. The building shown right here is a city building that Arcadia is going to provide the utilities and pad for um, and we're kind of trying to walk through that and see what we end up with there, or the city does, so. Uh, how do I go back? So as we get to this point right here, um, I wanted to talk about this easement a little bit and already kind of went through that for a second. Um, due to the geometrics of this and how the grade works, uh, it's really hard for us to kind of do anything else than what we have here. And so we worked really hard to get to this point. And we also wanted to show this as a way that we're not impeding on our neighbors and having people looking in and things like that. 
So, already went through these. And another thing is you're walking through the Paseo. Uh, you have low fences rather than tall six foot fences. So as you're walking through this area, it's very, um, it's very calm. So you have a low 48 inch fence or 42 inch picket fence. So you can kind of see around as you're walking through and it's not like you're walking through a tunnel having two six foot fences on either side, so. Here are the townhome lots. And like Artie said again, uh, this here is the encroachable space. Uh, that's gonna be used for garden rooms, wraparound porches, or other architecture features, features that enhance the look of these homes, so. And the casitas, similar, allowable encroachment. You can extend into that, add on uh, garden rooms or uh, additional architectural features. Um, the township homes, similar again. Um, and we did work really hard to get these setbacks how they are. So you look at those two zones in the front of the livable space or the forward enclosed portion of the home has a five foot offset from the garage. And then as you extend the porch out further, you have another eight feet. So it ends up being 13 feet is how far the garage is pushed back um, on, on some of these, because some may have stoops and they may be a little shorter. These are the lots that I was kind of talking about with the enhanced uh, architectural features. So I think I already kind of went through that as well. Uh, these are some of the features that we're talking about here too. So you have this coming out and this was actually uh, not as large as an encroachable space as this project. This was a five foot, so this would be able to come out a little more um, and then you have your porch here. This is a townhome building, um, and that would be able to wrap around that way. And sorry if my drawings are just making it more confusing, but uh, I'm trying here. Uh, here's another uh, picture from Kinney or uh, Thomas Place, a neighborhood that we developed a couple years ago. This is another townhome building and kind of a feel for how that ground covering would be in the terrace area. Um, another townhome building, uh, you see the stoops, the porches, all of the features that we're really excited about for this project. Um, these are kind of what the casitas will look like. We have porches on the two right and left side as well as a stoop on the middle right. Um, so those are some examples of how those will turn out. Uh, stacked porch, casita, um, and then a corner lot that kind of shows the, uh, the fence as it comes around. So the, when you're in the Paseo or there's other walking spaces, you're not blocked by a large fence. You can see in, you can see your neighbors, you can say hi, and it's more um, activatable that way. So this is just one I really liked. Uh, Casita with the stoop, the yellow door is a little out there. Everybody has their own taste and style. I, I like this one a lot though. 
Um, this is how the terraced area will work. Uh, this is kind of looking over that onto the casita lots. So already went through the 50 foot lots. We, we worked really hard to get these where they are. We've added the arbors, split garage doors, um, stoop features, um, all pushed by uh, Artie and Jason, which we, we think these turned out really well. So we're excited about this. This color, I'm not as big of a fan of, but I do love the stacked porch, the arbor over the top of the garage, uh, transom windows over the door, uh, all really nice little features to this home. Uh, similar porch, arbor over the garage doors, and uh, this one as well. So with that, uh, Bill Giedema will now come up and do his piece. Thank you. Good evening. Um, William Giedema, 8142 Garland Road, Dallas, Texas. Um, I... Um, I'm really happy to be here. Uh, we are really glad with how this has uh, turned out and uh, enjoyed working with staff on this. We've, um, to digress a little bit, we added uh, two styles to our pattern book. We, we added a Southwest Modern, and then we, we added another one that we're internally calling Industrial Chic, but we're gonna have to work with staff to come up with a better name uh, for that one, that, um, that uh, pulls together those topologies that were shown at Norton Commons and Trillet and some of the other neighborhoods that you went to so that we can um, describe those uh, to our builders and then they can translate that into elevations um, to, to bring to your future residents. Um, the reason I'm, I'm here, uh, there's six or seven uh, staff recommendations and we actually agree with um, out of the six, five and a half. And, and, and it's really item two. And it's really kind of a lack of, of definition that concerns us. And we just wanted to discuss it. So this is kind of more of a conversation. And I'm kind of glad that we're, we don't have lots of people here and we're kind of alone on the agenda. But what I want to kind of go over is the fact that we find ourselves in unique and challenging times uh, and, and unique historically in the North Texas housing market you know, people look for, for, for housing and you've got the whole Maslow's hierarchy of need. You've got shelter, you've got amenities, you have lifestyle. And what you're doing here, which I think is amazing regionally, is you're really focusing on the public realm. You're, you're focusing on being mixed, res, uh, mixed income, mixed generational, mixed housing types. You want to give people choices. You want people not to be segmented into housing pods, but you actually want them to be collected into neighborhoods. But the way that we've, we've looked at, at, at housing and neighborhoods and the way we believe you've been looking at it is to offer really good choices. So if someone wants, gets a, wants a porch, they get a porch that's furnished, right? That they have, they have good choices and that we help them make good investments. So what this slide shows is this is a, this is a nominal, um, 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 uh, index, and you can see here that in index in, in 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 Dallas metro area, over 10 years, our housing uh, prices have more than doubled. It's 123 percent. 
And this index is, is based upon the same home selling. So these aren't average homes, the Case-Shiller indexes, they track homes by address, and every time they sell, they list, they, they, they list in their index what it's sold for. So, you know, over the last 10 years, the same house, on average, has gone up in, in price 123%. This is not index for inflation, but it's way over inflation, right? Um, this is a local uh, new home price index, and you can see here that um, we've run up from about, a, about 220, and um, we've kind of peaked out at about roughly 420, and it's settled down to 396, so it's, it's an increase of 90% on new housing. Um, you know what this is actually uh, masking, is that even though those prices have nearly doubled, um, lot sizes have come down, so that, that higher price is on, an, on average a smaller lot, and it's for a smaller home that's further out. And um, people do that. They do those things to preserve amenities and finishes in the home. That's traditionally what happens. Upgraded cabinets, upgraded floors, et cetera. And that's because that's all, that's, everything else is generified, which is where I think our conversation goes is how do you make the neighborhood its own amenity? How do you make the public realm its own amenity? On top of that, we have the 30-year mortgage, uh, you know, essentially more than doubling here from, uh, from the first quarter of 21, uh, peaking last summer, but now it's down to just under 7%, and it keeps bouncing around. And so I show you these three slides as a, um, to try to quantify consumer stress. Um, and the housing affordability, affordability index is, is how that's indicated. And what's really shocking, and you can go back as far as this index has been maintained. And Texas uh, and generally, and Dallas and Fort Worth specifically, have always provided fabulous affordability across the entire spectrum of housing, whether it's a very modest home or whether it's actually a very large and affluent uh, type of home. And what you see here is that uh, with all of our job gains and all the fabulous work that the EDCs have been doing and the state of Texas has been doing to attract new businesses from California and, and, and Chicago and New York to come here is we've actually uh, uh, damaged the affordability. Uh, and we've now you can see here, when you include the median income, the median house price and the 30-year mortgage, um, in greater Dallas, only 28% of, of households can afford the, the median income, uh, median income household can afford housing. And in Fort Worth, it's slightly better. So let's say that you're, you, you take the Fort Worth static uh, statistic for Mansfield, you're still underperforming the national metrics, which um, that is a competitive disadvantage for us, but it's, it's, it runs, it makes the, the effort to um, encourage people to invest in the public realm that much more difficult because it's a, it's a new idea for most people because they haven't had the opportunity before. So what I wanted to do is is discuss and um, how we look at the public realm and private benefits. Uh, you know, some some people might say that this idea of a public realm is really a club good, that people in the neighborhood share it when you walk through the neighborhood, but it's also a public good because people can go to your neighborhood and walk through it. 
but also it generates a higher tax base and uh, more tax revenue for cities. If it's a well-done neighborhood, it's more stable and sustainable from a revenue standpoint to the city uh, over a much longer time than a conventional um, subdivision. And so we try to come up with, if there's, a, if there's a finite bucket of money that consumers can spend to invest in the public realm, to invest in their streetscape and in their neighborhood, whether it's enhancements of porches, bay windows, garden rooms, parks, canals, ponds, whatever it is, there's a bucket of money that people have to spend for that. And as we've seen in the previous slides, that bucket actually has gotten smaller and smaller to the point where people are build, buying smaller homes on smaller lots further out. So we need to kind of have a value proposition that doesn't penalize people. And so the way we've ordered um, our homes, and we've, we've done this for a number of years across a number of our, our traditional neighborhoods, is um, building elevations essentially have uh, three different levels of of, of style, material, and finish. And we regulate them at different uh, levels of specificity, but also cost. So the front elevation that is on, whether it's on a street or an open space, has the highest level of, of finish. It has the highest level of, of regulation. And it's where we want people to actually buy up. It's where we want them to make their investment in the public realm you know, we want them to go from a stoop to a porch, you know, to a full porch, to a wrap porch, to a stack porch, to a balcony, to a garden room, right? So we want them, every time they invest in those red edges, they are actually giving a gift to the street. They are actually increasing the, the visual attractiveness of the neighborhood and, and their investment in, 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 in their neighbors as well. And so um, we find that when you get behind that 15-foot wrap, so when you look down a street and you look in between homes, by the time you get to the fence, and that fence has to be back at 15 feet, you really can't see a lot behind it. And so the idea is to take the bucket of money that you have for this public realm and spend it up front where people can see it. And that includes when you're on a side street, that's a secondary um, elevation. And that elevation will have the same materials, will have the same detailing in the, in the, in the, in the trim around the windows, and it'll, it'll, it'll have the same um, patterns in the, in the windows themselves. And then when you get to the unmarked areas, those are just very solid. You know, those, are, those could be relatively uh, very durable materials, uh, but they can also be relatively modest in, um, in their expense. So they're still low maintenance, but the, the money for, let's say, the brick and for the additional detailing and for the stone is in those red areas. And we identify in the zoning those home sites that require this extra attention, that red line whether it's on a side street or an open space, whether it's on a park, a paseo, or green street, those elements need to be there, again, as an enhancement to that public realm, adding interest to the walkability. 
So where we are having an issue here, and, it, I, and it's, again, we're in, in agreement with the staff on, on, on everything except how we define this and how we make sure that we are not driving consumer sacrifice. So how do we encourage a private investment in the public realm, and are we doing anything to discourage that? Are we penalizing people to do that? And um, what you see here is if you take the perimeter of, this is a casita, and the casita is, is a, a, a garden home. It has a side courtyard, um, and it lives out the side of the home. Um, that space is shared, it's 10 feet between homes. And if you take uh, that home, it has a total perimeter of 206 feet all the way around. And if you take the perimeter of the front elevation zone in red, that's the 25 feet in front, 15 feet behind it until you get to that fence. So really, when you're walking down a street, unless you really are turning your head at 90 degrees and really kind of go, look back there, um, you're not really seeing a whole lot behind it. Um, that area in red is roughly 27% of the total perimeter of the home. And if we were going to um, be good stewards of where we ha have, where we force people or encourage them to spend on the public realm, it'd be in those red areas. Now, the consequence of having a blanket rule where materials, detail, trim has to be completely uniform around a building I think you can see here. So if for every $5,000 that you spend on the front of your home, you want to upgrade the brick, you want to go from a concrete brick to a clay brick to a tumbled brick to a frosted brick to painted brick to stone, and there might be five or six different types of stone. Each one of them is priced differently. For every time you make one of those upgrades, you, that, that $1 for that 27% of your perimeter you have to actually spend four times that amount to get around the home. And it's the areas that don't contribute to the public realm. Those are only purely for personal consumption because those are private yards. The alleys, I mean, that's where your garbage cans are, that's kind of that rough and tumble back of house. And investing there, it doesn't actually add anything to the public realm. People really shouldn't be hanging out and walking back there anyways. So, Again, for every $5,000 spent on the front of the home in the public realm with these upgrades can generate um, four times that cost. Um, one of our builders that we're hoping to bring to Kinney Park, uh, their regional uh, president, was the VP, the area manager, and, the, and eventually the president of uh, the, one of the builders in um, Baldwin Park uh, in, um, in Orlando. And um, they've had experience where you've got this four-sided, you know, architecture. Now he did say, and was also he also was a, in charge of celebration, which is Disney's big master plan. One of the things they didn't have is they didn't have a lot of fences, so they didn't have these hedges and fences that were blocking the area in between the homes. Um, and he said that on average, um, from depending on the architecture that it was running at that time between eight and $12 a foot, just that four-sided architecture penalty. So that area outside that 15 feet added that much to um, the home, and which was considerable. If you take a 2,000 square foot home, you're looking at 
um, you know, sixteen to twenty-four thousand dollars. An upgrade of your flooring in your living room might be four thousand. Cabinets might be um, four to six thousand. A, a bathroom upgrade for masters six thousand. You're still not even equal to the penalty of doing the four-sided architecture out of the public realm that isn't experienced by anyone but you sitting in your side yard. So there's consumer sacrifice there that we're all very concerned about. Um, the other thing that's really interesting that people really keep track of is that when you add brick on a home, the, the interior of the home gets smaller. So the area, not included in the red there, the front elevation zone, if you put a brick ledge there, if you take that from, let's say, a hardy plank to a brick, uh, the brick ledge takes out six inches along the perimeter of the home. When that home gets to be appraised, it is 75 square feet smaller, and if you just apply it at kind of a $250 a square foot uh, value there, adding the brick actually reduces the home value as, a, as an appraised value by just under $19,000, just because you lose that, that 75 square feet. That's, that's, that's on one floor. In a two-story home, you can double it. I'm not saying that we shouldn't do any of this. I'm just saying we should all be conscious of what sacrifice we're forcing someone to not have an amenity inside the home for an amenity that only they can enjoy outside the home. And then the, the, the last piece of this that I'm concerned about is um, our homes, um, and specifically the casitas, are garden homes. They live out at the courtyard. So you've got a 3-7 split on the property line, and um, all the homes on the non-zero side essentially use all the yard between their home and the wall of their neighbor's home. Those, that wall has very few windows to no windows. It has high glass. It may have um, um, wide, shallow glass. It may have um, glass block, and, or it may have frosted glass, because all those windows are to maintain privacy to the courtyard, so you don't want people looking into it, but also to provide light on the zero side of the home. If, if these regulations aren't properly um, um, crafted, you know, all of a sudden, you, where does the glass block go? Where does the frosted glass go? Where's all these other elements that make these courtyards work so that one homeowner has privacy and the other one has light, but they have privacy on the other side because everyone gets a courtyard. So that's the courtyard conundrum that we're concerned about. So these are neighborhoods that we've done. Um, these have used the same rules where when you get past that 15 feet, the regulations are, that's a private area, right? It's like, that's like inside someone's house. And you can see here, you can't see in those side yards. Um, whether there's a hedge there or whether there's a fence there, that, that that dad pushing the baby isn't going to be able to see in there. That's not part of the public realm. But it carries um, a 300% penalty if we have this rule not carefully crafted. When you're looking down a street, and you can see here, you're not picking up any of those differences. You, know, you get to that 15 feet, and you've got something else in front of it. We do our best to put windows there, and if, we, if the room doesn't work for the windows, we put closed shutters there. But those folks can all invest in a, an extended porch, a stacked porch, or 
In this case, they can invest in being on a home site adjacent to a canal. So this is, uh, this is a canal street, and instead of having pavement, this is the same distance from home to home, but that canal is about the same width as a, as a street. And any of you that have been to hometown here in North Richmond Hills would have, would have seen that. If we would have imposed an eight to $12 penalty on those homes, it would have been very difficult for many of those people to actually buy that public realm, either in terms of their porches or in terms of upgrading their lot to a canal. And then uh, here is another neighborhood uh, Mr. Bennett, Mr. Shaw may have been out there with us. Uh, this is um, the Canals at Grand Park in Frisco. And again, same rules. You can look across these homes, and this isn't even, this is across a green space, and you're not picking it up. You just aren't picking up that, dif that, that difference in the materiality because it's so far back, and there's so much in front of it, where the, and the variety of porches and materials in front of it, it your eye doesn't actually pick it up you'd have to actually walk up and really look into someone's backyard. These people could take that money from the back of their home on the alley and buy that second floor of porch or buy that metal roof on that, on that porch uh, there at the second home in or buy the nice fluted columns or um, you know, buy the tile roof. All those things add to the value of the public realm. They're an investment in the neighborhood. There's nothing these people could do on the alley that would be the same that would add any value to the neighborhood. So in terms of housing costs and benefits, we're not arguing with the staff. We, we've, it's a very compatible staff with where we're thinking. Our concern is we need to, we're thinking about um, how we encourage people to invest in the public realm. We don't want to penalize someone for upgrading the brick, for going to stone, for buying the, uh, a, a rafter tails, or buying brackets. Right? We, don't want, we want to eliminate the penalty so they spend more where it counts and where it adds value to the neighborhood. So given the historically low housing affordability in DFW, we believe it requires a wise and considerate balancing of the public and private benefits of where we force people to spend their money. And so what we'd like to do is um, we'd like to get some coaching from you in terms of where we should be, how we maintain lifestyle and public realm and respect people's budgets and, and, and their desires to have the upgraded kitchen or the upgraded floor um, or the charger, you know, car charger in their, in their garage or upgraded bathroom or the additional bonus room for a child. And uh, if we can have that conversation, I think it would help us a lot in terms of working things out with staff. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Geetham. We will now open the public hearing at 7.07 p.m. And with the exception of the applicant, we do have one additional card that is a non-speaker in support. And um, I'm afraid that I would really butcher this name. If last name is Ross, R-A-S. Would you pronounce your name, please, sir? Okay, gotcha. I hope they got that on the record. <laughs> Thank you. He is a non-speaker in support of the project. I believe that's the only card we have. We will close the public hearing at 7.07 p.m. and we will open it up to commissioner questions and comments. Mr. Chairman. Commissioner Moses. Yes, sir. 
question to anyone. Um, so on recommendation for our consideration number four, and, and I think there, there may, may have been some clarity, but I'm somewhat stuck on the story of the height. Sometimes townhomes are like three stories, and I noticed this is these are two. And can you help me understand that better? Um, the the typologies that they've utilized, they right. do have uh, two-story models. Uh, in some instances, those have dormers that sort of are two and a half. I think really what uh, point number four gets to though is is just making sure that the ordinance has uh, definitions of those types of items. Story and height being the two that, that are, are sort of not quite defined all the way, but you're correct. In a lot of instances, when we've been looking at townhomes or row houses uh, in the city of Mansfield, we have been looking for, for three-story models. Again, what the developer chose was two-story models, uh, and I can let them uh, discuss sort of where that market lies, but these are two-story models. Do you mind? Oh, no, sir. Please. Um, so if and, and these are different types of housing, a townhome is not a townhome. You can have a one-story townhome. You can have two, three. Where you typically see a three-story townhome is where you have very dense, very expensive land. And the reason why is um, the building a three-story townhome is approximately 30 to 35 percent more expensive per square foot than a two-story townhome. So what people typically do is if you want to have 2,200 square feet in a townhome in, in a, in a non-downtown location, you can essentially take that 30 to 35 percent of just cost difference of additional stairs and additional uh, framing, et cetera, et cetera. And you basically make the lot longer and you have that same square footage just on a, in a longer building, a deeper building. And um, so it, there's a price difference. But now the other thing that we have is really emphasizing a transect, a range of housing types. And if you have, um, and, and this is actually in, in several other codes that we've shown you lately, uh, 2360 is another one. If you think about going from the smallest home to the largest home, right, and, and, and there's a bracket of square footage that basically goes with the lot type. If in the middle of that, you say you're going to go from basically one story to two story uh, bungalows and cottages, and then you go to a three-story with a, with a cost difference of 30 to 35% on the same depth lot that you could have a two-story home on, you're essentially forcing people to pay 35% more in cost for the same square footage. And what it does is it makes that building type um, cost ineffective, cost inefficient. It causes consumer sacrifice relative to the, the homes on either side of it. The, the casita that's two-story and the township home that is, is one-story or two-story. It's very difficult to sell um, an additional staircase to climb 
on a shorter home that's 35% more expensive. And so if this wasn't a smooth transition of, of building types, um, it would be, it would be um, less impactful if, in the same kind of location. But in this location, because we have building types on either side of it, we would have a very tough time selling uh, townhomes at that third story, 30, 35% penalty. So it's, it's all about context. It's not that it's necessarily uh, a, a bad idea, but it's about context and about the buildings that are being built adjacent to it. So um, we're not saying we can't have them. If someone wants to spend 35% more per square foot, they're welcome to. What we've really tried hard to do is to make sure that they, um, they um, have the amenities at the street level, that we maintain uh, interesting roof lines with, with um, balconies and with um, uh, dormers. Um, and we've also taken into account the two architectural styles that staff has pointed us to that are very handsome to make sure those are gonna be available to our residents. It's for the two of you, I, I assume. Uh, so we, we've heard there is a support from a member of the audience, from the public. So what is, what, what is it going to take uh, for staff and the developer to come together? I think we can continue. So, so I, I wrote down a couple of dates because I just wanted to make sure that we understood uh, when this one, this project was, was uh, slated to move forward if it does. Uh, and that is that it would go to city council on uh, February 12th, followed by a hearing on February 26th. So we have time, right? We have time to have this discussion. Um, I think we've heard a lot of the explanation that the developer has provided about sort of where the, the best area uh, to, to focus improvements on is. Um, I think one of the things we, we want to make sure that there's, there's some concern and some dialogue that continues is, uh, especially along the alleyways, because even though these are the areas where you place trash cans and they are the areas where, um, you know, you might not see the same types of treatments that you see uh, on, the, on the front side of the home. They're still important, very important sides of the building because it's probably the side of the building that you'll see the most, right, as a driver. And, and unfortunately, we are going to always be a car society where people drive. And so, so this will be an area where you're driving in, um, you know, on a daily basis as you enter and leave your home. Uh, the front of the home, super important as well, right? creating that, that very well-defined public realm. Um, that's why the porch is there. That's why the, the stoop is there. So those are important, but we also want to make sure that, that those areas that you see um, have some of those same treatments. And so I want to make sure that, that we all understand that we're not trying to say that it needs to be an identical facade to what's up at the front, but we're saying that the, some of those same treatments need to find their way to that rear facade. And I think those, that's the kind of dialogue we can continue to have as we're, we're, we're discussing these items. Uh, I hope that answers your question. Um, so we don't, we don't ignore the alley. Um, we, we pay attention to it in terms of, of fencing. We take uh, care of making sure that there's accessibility you know, for, for garbage and recycling and fire, et cetera. And we also make sure that, for example, we have night lighting. We have sconces on either timers or photo cells. So, so we maintain even, even lighting down the alleys in the evenings. 
we pull the fences back away from the, the city right-of-way so that they're in parallel in alignment with the garages so that when you come down the alley, you've got clear views down the alley, which we think is actually more important, right, that you have clear views and, and, a, and a clearer, uh, wider um, um, space from fence to fence, from building to building than you would typically see in, in cities or in communities that don't regulate that. But when you're driving down that, down that alley, the first thing that you really pay attention to at night is, is, is it evenly lit? Right? Do you, do you suffer from lack of, of loss of, of your night vision because there either isn't enough light or it's too bright? Uh, and, or that it flicks on or off when you move through the alley as opposed to a nice even, even lighting? And there's a lot of security. There's the eyes on the open space. There's, there's um, this safety of places that are evenly uh, well and predictably lit. But when you're driving down there because of where we pull the fences, you're not really seeing those garages. You're not seeing anything until you do a hard 90 degree over your shoulder. What you're doing is you're looking down the alley and you're seeing a lot of fence. You're seeing a lot of fence in alignment. You're seeing sconces and then you're seeing the oblique view on a garage door. So it's not the way you experience a, um, a front elevation from a street or from an open space. So we look at it and we say, you know, if, if um, where would people rather put their money we would think on the front, on the front um, porch in the, in the public realm and the, and, and the side streets. In all the years we've been doing this, this is my 31st year of being a new urbanist. We've, we've never once had anyone that asked us to put brick on, their, on the alley or to um, do split garage doors or to, um, to have uh, ionic columns on the back of their home that, meet the, that match the front of their home. It's never come up. What it needs to be, it needs to be durable, needs to be secure, needs to be well lit, and it has to provide good, safe, long views so that people, there's no, there's no places for people to hide. And it needs to be consistent um, quality. Uh, and that consistent quality isn't with the front of the, of the, of the building, it's about all the buildings on the alley. They're properly detailed relative to each other. So that's how we look at it. Again, it goes back to a hierarchy of place. Even Walt Disney did this because he only got half the loan he wanted to build Disneyland. He came up with his, the, the hierarchy of touch. And if you go through Disneyland, you will see this. Main Street, you know, brick pavers, beautiful buildings. Second floor of those buildings are five-seventh scale, right? It looks like it's the right scale, but it didn't have the money to actually build full scale. You start going around the side of those buildings, the detailing comes down. You go behind those buildings, and there's they're blank walls. And then, it, the, and then they actually had to go underground to, to hide all their garbage and, and everything else. If you think about an, 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 a, something like a car, a car is actually a freestanding piece of design in the landscape. Right? If you are looking around a car, it, all the sides need to match up. And there needs to be kind of an aesthetic unity and harmony there. But if you have them parked in a parking lot, you really only see the fronts of them, right? Or the backs of them. It depends head in and head out. Um, that is an, that's a piece, that's an, an object in the open. But think of something like a, a, an oven that you have you know, at your home. You, you, you wouldn't want to have to pay to have all the sides of that oven to have the same level of detail and materials as the front of it, right? The GE or whoever it is pulls that money, your budget, to make the front of it excellent. Because no one's going to care about what the backside that's hidden behind the cabinet is. 
And so that's where we're coming from is we feel that the alley is its own frontage type, needs to be durable, well lit, needs to provide good views, and it needs to be, you know, it needs to respond to its use, which is basically storing cars, you know, conveying those cars to your, to your garage, um, putting your trash out, and having the pickup for the trash. It's essentially, you know, it's, it's, it's the back of house. It's, 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 it's not where you hang out. And so we believe that that, again, Walt Disney would say, it needs to be durable, simple materials that's well lit. So just clarification, um, what's your stance on adding it? So if you don't add it, this wouldn't go through. So on proposition, uh, I guess what it is is two. Um, you don't, you're, you're not willing to add that in. You're not willing to, to be accept, um, agreeable to those terms. Uh, no, we've, we've, uh, we've, we want to discuss that because what we feel that it's current, it's currently describes a very significant consumer sacrifice that in this market with the low affordability that we have is forcing people to sacrifice amenities they really, really want including the, the, the exterior amenities that are beneficial and then the internal intrinsic amenities that are desirable for something that they're not gonna value. And I would, here's a, here's a kind of a, a, a mind experiment, which is if we would make it an option that all four sides of the home match in terms of everything behind that 15 feet, in terms of materials, Windows, window patterns, detailing, rafter, you know, rafter tails, brackets, you know, decorative venting. If we would do that, you know, I just want you know, it, I just want you to think: How many of your family, how many of your wives or husbands, or parents or children would actually say, "I want to go pay on a two thousand square foot home somewhere in the neighborhood of sixteen to twenty-four thousand dollars for that?" And here's the list of things that I can't have inside my home, or I have to have, I can't afford the upgraded brick on the front of the home because I have to buy four bricks for every one I want to build with. Or I can't afford the brackets because I, I have to build, I, for every one bracket, I have to buy four brackets. You know, those are the things that, we, that, we're, that we're, we're asking about. We're looking for some coaching because I know you guys have gone to a lot of different really fine neighborhoods. And I must say, Jason's done an outstanding job really giving you guys tours of fine places and um, the one thing that's in common with those places is, you know, if you look at their square footage, you know, the price per square foot, it's, it's about double or more what we're proposing here. And what we're proposing here is, 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 is above market as, as it is. So it, it, it is almost a false equivalency. And so we're saying that we have to reset what we've seen and what's ideal. I'd love to do it. I feel bad about forcing people to sacrifice for it. And I think that's what we're talking about right here. I'm not saying it's a bad idea. Yeah. We're not saying that anyone's heart is in the bad in the, in the bad place. I'm just saying, is it the right thing to do right now for the people we're trying to attract and keep in Mansfield? I want to add a point, Ed, if you could, Mr. Rodriguez. Um, Mr. Giedem, you've 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 reiterated over and over that what you do on the front, you have to do exactly on all four sides. What I heard from the city is that they has, that is not what they're asking you to do. They're asking you to do more than the minimum, 
and they're asking you to do a little bit more than what maybe you have in your plans today. But I don't believe that proposal number two asks you to do exactly what you're doing on the front. So the dollars that you are giving us, and you multiplied it by four, based on the upgrades you do on the front, you're gonna do on all four sides. I don't think that's what the city is asking. Am I, am I right, Mr. Rodriguez? That is correct, Mr. Chair. So the way that it is written is dealing with materials, not windows, not columns, not any of those other features that were described. The notion of four-sided architecture really goes back to the zoning ordinance currently written and as was adopted back in 1986. What we're asking for is that there is similar materials on the front the side and the rear elevations. And that's been shown to be able to be done in a number of developments that we've toured, as well as a number of developments that have come before you for recommendation and have gone before the city council and received approval. Thank you very much, sir. So I wanted us to be clear that, you know, for the record, that that's not what the city is asking you to do. They're asking you to do more, but not asking you to do exactly what you did on the front of the building. I also want, I heard you say a couple of times that this is a four-sided architectural penalty. And, uh, and we don't see it that way in the city of Mansfield. I know that it's, you said you've been doing this for 31 years and this is the first time that someone has asked you to go above and beyond what you would wanna do on the development. Well, welcome to Mansfield. You know, th this is a little bit different. Uh, we are really trying to ensure as we utilize the final pieces of land that we have, that we are developing in a way that is pleasing to the city. Understanding that we may agree to disagree. How you see it versus how the city sees it, obviously there's a disagreement there, and that's okay. But we wanna be clear that what we're asking you to do, or what the staff is asking you to do, is clearly not everything that you've already done on the front of the building. I think we also have a difference of opinion and viewpoint on the alleyways. So uh, in your comments earlier, you said, you know, by the way, it's just, it's an alley. Well, to us, it's not just an alley because we do know that residents will be in that space, whether they're driving the vehicle, whether they're walking in that space, they will still see that space and residents will see it as they go through that area. So we don't want it to be just an alley. We want it to be something that is pleasing, that is pleasant, that doesn't get to the point to where it starts to break down. Mm -hmm. You know, back several years ago, we, it was okay for several homes to be built with a lot of uh, hardy plank on the side or side, siding on the side of the building. Front looks great, but when you get to the side of the building, that siding sometimes can really, really look pretty bad. And that's why we're trying to focus on ensuring that all four sides of the structure is something that we are pleasing with. It's something that is aesthetically pleasing to the neighbors as well. Even though you may not see it from the street, if you have a neighbor next door to you, they're gonna see it. If there are windows on that side of the home. If they go outside on that side of the house, they are going to see the side of the home that is next door to them. That's important. It may not be important to the people who are driving down the street. It may not be important to the people who are walking down the sidewalk, but it's important to your neighbor that all sides of that home looks very aesthetically pleasing. So that's important to us as well, and I think that's why the focus is here. You know, I'm, I'm very appreciative that you're in agreement of five of the items that are listed. I think this one is something that would continue to work. I think that you and the staff can come to an agreement. I'm hoping that we can, but um, I don't want this one item to be something that is a sticking point for us. 
that we're spending the majority of the night talking about this one particular piece of the six proposals and it's getting in the way of us trying to get this project completed or get it off the ground. Um, so what we're asking, so first of all, we want a conversation. We're not making demands, we want clarity, right? So um, the item two, we're not in disagreement that we need to have um, uh, increased standards. We're just, we just wanna have a conversation of where's the best place to spend people's money to the best effect for the public realm. And um, you know, in terms of upgrading um, materials, brick, brick stone, upgrading brick, et cetera, that does carry through here. The, um, the item that we hadn't seen before was uh, uh, detailing including trim, which means a rafter tail in the front, a bracket on the front, a, a decorative vent on the front is repeated. That's how we read it. And, um, and, and so really it goes back to that hierarchy of touch. And um, we are talking about the same bucket of money and, and going back to the building types. The garden homes that we have, the casitas, the, the only home that has the view in your yard is your home. We, we restrict the view into your yard from the neighboring home using frosted glass, glass block, and um, high glass. In the homes that are centered on a lot, you typically have a fence between the homes, right? So there are communities that you visited, uh, whether it's Trillith or Norton Commons, but there are others, that there, there are few or very uh, no fences or all low fences. And you do actually see through blocks and, and see down um, alleys and, and whatnot. And so it's much more visible. Here, our building culture is you put a fence between homes. So I'm, I'm, I'm still at the point where, you know, if you're in your side yard um, and you're looking at the stone that you put in there, you're the only one seeing it. And every time you see it, it's what, did I, what couldn't I buy there? If you're worried about durability, I'm 100% with you. And, and so rest assured that if there's hardy plank on the front of the home or hardy shingle on the front of the home, there's, there is not hardy panel on the side of the home, right? Which is, which is what I believe we're talking about, which is you take a cementitious fiberboard that's decorative and well-detailed, and then you turn a corner and you just do these four by eight panels, you staple up. That's not what we're talking about. Okay, so uh, the, the penalty is still there. The, there's a lack of definition here. The alleys are very designed, but they're designed to be utilitarian, well-lit, and safe, and durable. And so, again, it's, it, this is a conversation, given our, our context economically, is where do you want us to spend the money? This doesn't mean this neighborhood doesn't go through. It's, it goes back to we need to be wise and considerate of the people that are moving in. And... Uh, so we're not, there's no dictates here that we're making. There's no lines in the sand, but we are looking for direction, wisdom, and consideration. Okay, thank you, sir. Before I pass it on, I have one question for Mr. Hodge. Uh, and I just wanted to get clarity on this. You had, you had walked through uh, some of the front garages on the homes yes. that you have, and I, I heard you mention about the distance from the garage to the street. Yeah. Could, uh, you, could you go back to that slide and cover that, please? Yeah, that'd be awesome. Do you want the, uh, 
I think you mentioned, I, I think I heard 13 feet. Yeah, so that would be if there is a full-size porch into the front of the home. Okay. So if you build a full-size porch into that eight feet, um, you have 13 feet from the face of the garage door. To the street? To the edge of the porch. Okay, what's the distance from the garage to the, to the sidewalk? Do you know the space in between? Um, the, the reason I'm asking the question is just curious as to if the vehicles that are parked in the driveway would cross the sidewalk. It's a 20-foot setback from the sidewalk to the garage door. 20 feet? Yes. Okay. So some of our large pickup trucks are going to cross the sidewalk more than likely, right? Yes. There's two dimensions. I want to make sure that okay. that we see this. So we see yeah. this here that's 15. That's to the front build line of okay. the home. Okay. The 20 feet that he's discussing is the garage would be offset that additional uh, five feet. Five from, feet. Exactly. Okay. From, from the front wall of the home. Yeah. So it's 20 feet. It's, it's 20 feet. Okay. All right. That was it. Thank you, All sir. Right. Thank you. Okay. All right. Commissioner Bennett. Uh, so I, I just wanted to um, state that I did purchase a, a four-sided brick home because it had four-sided brick. Um, so I, I don't have much experience um, on being an expert in uh, real estate on what drives demand, but I, losing the square footage because of that brick was not really a concern of mine. Um, and that was one of the big uh, buying points for me personally of that home. Um, and it was based strictly on the durability because of a previous home that I had owned where hardy plank was an issue um, and it was less than 10 years old. So, uh, But I did want to ask um, uh, a real estate person that I do know here, I don't know if we can have a conversation because we can't do it in person. So, um, yeah, I just I wanted to ask you personally as far as what is your experience in marketability of a home? Um, is that okay? Yes, I believe it's okay. Um, okay. Typically, yeah, typically I mean, we can't this talk in person about it, but yeah. I mean, can we talk here? There's, there's a lot recorded. of time when this dialogue would normally happen after the public hearing is closed, okay. uh, but I don't, I don't mind. Yeah. Okay. So, anyway, so I'll, I'll leave it at that. So, my, okay. Yeah, my my personal uh, purchasing of of a home did not have anything to do with um, whether or not I was going to afford upgrades um, or not. So, um, I don't believe it's going to impact uh, these, um, the purchases of these. I think there's enough demand uh, here that it's, these are going to sell because of the, the durability and long-term uh, lasting of those homes. So, um, yeah, and if you want to comment. Okay. Um, yes, I think that, uh, I think you're on the right path. I think that consumers will not come in uh, and really want to look at P&L statements. They're going to want to buy something with emotion, with um, satisfaction for their family, with ease of location to uh, amenities within the city, and they're going to want to feel good about coming into their home regardless of what area that they walk through. They're not going to want to drive up to a community and see the facade of something and then go into something and see that it's actually mediocre. And I feel 
this is my personal opinion based on this presentation and what has been shown. I think that you've put together a great presentation. I think that this could be a really great community, but I think that you are downgrading our city with some of the thought processes in regards to the craftsmanship and the caliber of which you would like to build your buildings in the interior of this community. I think that this community deserves the same respect and vision that you would want to put into the public realm, into where everybody can see it. People in this community should deserve that regardless of whether they live on the public realm, whether they live on the interior lot, and whether or not they're walking up and down the alley with their trash cans or their dogs or saying hi to their neighbors. This community deserves everything that this front of it is going to get. So I think that the city is doing a really fine job displaying and conveying the vision for where Mansfield wants to go. I think Chairman Maynard gave you extreme amount of clarification in regards to where our expectations lie and where the vision is for the city. And I think that you could really produce a great community and probably produce a great product. I think that we just have to come to terms on the expectations that we have that we're not willing to bend on. I'm sorry, I went off a Thank little you. bit on that. No, um, and, and it, that's, that's what I was looking to, to get um, because that's the same, same sentiment is I don't believe that, you know, an $18,000 extra cost on a $300,000, um, I think the look is what's going to sell the house um, at that point. And the, and the feel uh, is what, you know, I went for as looking for a durable house. That's what, that's what I went for. Uh, I did not want a house that just had brick on the front and paneling on the side. Um, so. Commissioner Goodwin. I completely agree with what the federal commissioners have said, but I am intrigued by the whole process of this dialogue. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily a dialogue that's going to occur here in Mansfield. Uh, I think that's going to have to occur on a national level, NAHB level perhaps, where you get architects, engineers, developers, realtors, and appraisers all together and they take a, a, what, a view of what the next-gen uh, vernaculars are going to be. And I, th I think that you, perhaps what you are expressing is a good next-gen vernacular, but I think that's next-gen, not right now. So I'm going to switch gears for a few minutes and talk about the site itself. Um, it is a, certainly a challenging site, no doubt. I live not too far from the site. Uh, I know the good folks that live in Woodland Estates right next door. Um, we certainly had our, had our stuff up here with the city on several issues. Uh, one of them is still ongoing and it is a major concern of mine. And that is I would like to know where all the water is going to go on the site once it's developed. Because I'm aware of some really bad issues that are off to the north of here with the detention ponds at Willen Estates and where the easement is for, I think it's a gas line and some issues back there, some erosion issues and so forth. So I really would like to know something as to where all this offsite drainage is going. Do we have, have we had any site planning done on this yet? Any analysis done on this? So thankfully Raymond's in the, in the audience today. Um, but I do want to assure every commissioner that as we bring any a zoning case to you, um, it goes through preliminary review with all of our departments. So there have been preliminary discussions on, on, on what is needed uh, from 
the development where it is now, right? So from a, a preliminary design, some of those discussions have been had. A lot of those discussions don't get flushed out until the plat comes through. Uh, that's where, uh, but the developers already had to show some of the grading and some of those items that, that impact the drainage. And um, at this point, they're not showing a, a detention area. But I'd like, I mean, Raymond, if you have any comments on that, uh, if, if you want to. Just an overall aerial? Well, can we go to that other one? Well, I don't know. It's so dark. I'm not going to get it. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was thinking. Um, can you go back to our presentation? We have the aerial view there. Without getting into the details, I mean, what, what you're talking about is, is true in that hog pen branch there. So this development, in, in essence, to answer your question, does all drain to hog pen branch. So they, they're going to have an underground storm drain system and it will outfall over there to the east. Um, I believe most of it's to the, over there to the east because that's, that's where the site drains. And so they're right close to the creek. So conveying it to the creek, uh, Hogpen is where it will go. Exactly how to do that, they will have to detail that out, like I said, with the construction plans. But what you're speaking about that's what the city has those regional detention ponds for uh, downstream. So that's why we're not requiring other localized detention on developments in this region is because we have these regional detention ponds, uh, one being right downstream by Dolce, uh, over by Dolce Vita and those other areas. So the other erosion that you're talking about, we're looking at in a detail very specifically for that. But for this development, that's really what they would be concerned about, or we would too, whether they need to detain and can be concerned about those downstream uh, issues. But we're not going to require that simply because we have a regional detention system along Hogpen because it is such an issue. send water in a chute to the outfall. And so my concern is if we're already having issues now with the way things are, where you have vegetation that's, you know, slowing things down through this area, you go build a development here. What is that going to do with the issues that we are currently having? Well, I, I would have to address those specific issues where you're speaking about. I guess I would have to maybe understand them better. I'm not it's sure exactly. kind of over there where Meriwether Street is at Woodland, Woodland Estates, as you where it dead ends and mm -hmm. the creek turns through there. Right. There's a lot of erosion problems back there. there had, they have been there. And yes. we've brought this to the attention of the city several times. <laughs> yeah, and we, I, as far as I know, they haven't been fixed. Well, we have a, we have, we, the, the real problem there is, is with the TRWD water lines that, that cross right. there. At least that's what's impacting them. We have a cost share and a plan planned with TRWD, but at the time they, they're looking at lowering their lines instead of protecting them as they are. 
So that's one of the things we were waiting on for them to ultimately decide that. But yes, we're aware, we, we have a, a plan to protect it, but a big part of it, it, first of all, it's extremely expensive. So we don't right. want to protect that and then have them tear it all up with their water lines. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure. We have one more, uh, one more detention pond to go, uh, but that, that's what we were waiting on was to work with TRWD on that, that area. Um, so we did have a plan in place and we kind of put a pause on it to wait on them. Um, but I don't know if there's anything else that can be done on a, on a temporary basis because what you said is a good point. It's a large issue. You can't just go out there and do, um, you know, you can't put a Band-Aid on that. That's, that's going to take a significant fix. So points taken, but we're, we're, we have a plan in place. And so we would take response for this development. We would take responsibility for that from a larger perspective because you're, you're correct. This is not going to this is not going to impact that. It's such a larger issue. This wouldn't necessarily impact that in any real specific way, unless they had this grading situated such that it you know caused it. I mean, caused it to get worse. And we would be looking at that when they bring in detailed uh, construction plans. Okay. Appreciate the information. Okay, no problem. I don't know if it eases my concern, but appreciate it. I appreciate at least kind of knowing where we are in the process. And right, like I said, when they bring construction plans in, that's when we would start the detailed review. Like I already said, everything's conceptual and preliminary right now. Okay. The other question I have, while well, I have here, is is the exact the picture that I'm looking at from from the property that's being proposed tonight and the property that's already there in this sloped area, this 50 foot easement. Do we have, can y'all give me like a rough number on that, what the slope is of that? Because when I look at that, I look at water going into the backyard of the people that already live there. So just curious. It's a four to one slope. It's a four to one. Okay. All right. Appreciate that. Um, the other thing that's not related to four-sided architecture and look of the neighborhood on my list is the, in the staff write-up, it said that the discussions with the fire department were ongoing. Is there an update with with that, or y'all are still in that, so, still having discussions? So there's a, a couple of items that have, have been discussed with the fire department. Um, and the developer has provided, there's a, there's a document within the um, exhibits uh, that shows a standpipe system and some other items. Again, I think there's just some, some remaining dialogue, and that dialogue can happen between now and the plat as well. Uh, because it's one that will be discussed as you, and it will be one that also goes into building permit because some of the solutions that the fire marshal has brought up are things like residential fire sprinkler systems or, um, or other sort of parking related things with the way the right-of-ways are configured today. Both of those items are items that as we've had the discussion, uh, even with the fire marshal, we understand that those are things that, that will continue dialogue. I think I noted them in the staff report uh, so that it is noted that some of these items are still being worked out. Uh, for instance, uh, they, they are showing a, a 20, 27 foot curb to curb uh, typical residential roadway uh, where the city of Mansfield standard is 29. And so that's, that's sort of the, the remaining dialogue uh, there with the fire marshal as far as 
Uh, should parking be allowed on both sides of the street? Or, or again, what that ultimate design would be like? And so, again, I think that's all still ongoing dialogue that we understand needs to, to continue to take place. All right. Thank you. Um, the other item I had was just, you know, in general, I, we, this comes up from time to time about traffic and traffic impacts. And it's not really, I don't think I'm necessarily concerned about, you know, the number of units we're looking at here, the traffic generator coming out of it, on the, but it, it, it's Main Street itself. And the, you know, the vicinity of this neighborhood to the other things that exist there, the bus barn, the school, and so forth. Um, I'm assuming that the location of the entrance and exit has been worked out and this is the optimum location for it. Um, I'd prefer to move it further away from um, it's how close it is to the busy intersection of Main Street and Debbie. Um, but I do have some concerns there about the traffic impacts of the neighborhood. Um, I do like the fact that there's an easement being placed in here for potential pedestrian access there. Uh, with the school property. I do like that. Um, the front, I, I mean, I like the look that was pre presented tonight, but in reality, I don't see sidewalks being placed along Main Street through here since that's more like a, more or less a, you know, a state road, very wide with a turning rating. You know, I'm just not seeing many people like going out to the road highway here from the neighborhood. So something to consider when you're looking at your amenities there in the gateway. Um, the other thing I was wondering from the developer, the green space here, that's the first green space, you talked about the fire pit, but what is this other feature here with the fire pit? It's a shaped structure, so it'll be uh, maybe like the structure that we showed. Uh, does this work oh, right here? similar to this structure possibly, but we're still working out the details of what that'll end up being. So I'm, I guess I'm talking about the, the leveled structure. Is that what I'm seeing in here? Is it like an amphitheater or? So uh, it's basically walls that step down to this pit. Okay. And so the fire pit will be down below. You'll have these walls with ground covering stepping down uh, to this seating space, so. Okay, that's nice. I'd like to see a couple more of those spaces in there, but I think that's a good idea for that area. Um, those are my concerns outside of what's been raised tonight on the actual, you know, details of the home. Um, as far as what I can offer on that, um, it bothers me every day that I bought a home that I can't enjoy in the round. That's from an external perspective and an internal perspective. I completely understand, uh, Mr. Guinea, what you're saying about where should I spend my money in my home? Where, where does it bring true value? Um, I bought my home in a, in a really optimal market time frame, and, but I was limited because the contractor just didn't give me options. I wanted more, he didn't give me more. And I feel like that is the more or less the ebb and flow with this business sometimes. When it gets hard, the options are, are slim because it costs me so much money and it's costing the contractor so much money to buy materials to build the house. 
uh, when everything is rosy and great, we can offer more and offer more details in the home. It's an unfortunate ebb and flow, um, but in the end, I do agree with uh, Commissioner Thompson, Commissioner Bennett, and Vice Chairman Maynard that this is the home I'm buying and I wanna be able to put what I want in it. So give me all the options. Um, and that's on the inside and out. We went and saw, you, we are blessed to have the opportunity that we've had to go visit Trillith, to go visit Alpharetta, Georgia, Woodstock, Georgia, Norton Commons. You know, I think every single one of us got that opportunity to go visit these places. And I do agree with, uh, with Mr. Alexander that, you know, we got to see everything in the round and I, I enjoyed it. You know, those are the kind of neighborhoods that we want to see here because we want, when we went through the, the land, the vision plan, the, the land plan, and we, uh, you know, the mayor tasked us with, with two words, dream big. And I think we certainly did that in what we produced and, and what got approved from here. And we still, no matter the challenges that are out there from an economic perspective, I think we need to hold true to that vision that we've all accepted up here. So that's, that's really my take on the quality of the look for the home. And those are my comments. Thank you. Thank you, commissioners. Are there any other comments? Yes. yes. One more quick one. Uh, if this was built and I lived there and I had a teenage son or our daughter, I would hate to think they would have to use a car to get to school at Ben Barber. So I would love to see a sidewalk somewhere along there that they can safely traverse that on foot. Thank you, sir. Any other comments or questions from the commissioners? If not, I will ask for a motion. But before I do that, I want to remind you all Remind the commissioners that we are voting on a change of zoning. Keep in mind that price is not a factor in our decision. So although we've had some conversations about what doing foresighted could do and what that means, uh, price is not a factor in our zoning decision. I also would like to remind you that if you are in agreement to the proposals, the six proposals that has been presented by staff, I would ask that you include that in your motion. And I'll now open the floor for a motion. I move to approve with staff recommendations. Okay, we have a motion to approve by Commissioner Shaw, which includes the six proposals by staff. Do we have a second? Second, second by Commissioner Moses. There are no questions, please cast your votes. And that item passes 7-0. We'll now move on to item eight, new business. Item number 24-5835, consider proposed revisions to the city of Mansfield standard construction details, January of 2024. We have a presenter, Mr. Raymond. Yes, sir. Now I'm going to switch gears. So good evening again. I wanted to bring uh, some changes uh, that we are proposing 
to our standard construction details that the engineering department has. So the current uh, standard construction details are basically the engineering department's uh, requirements, specifications, and construction standards for all of the public infrastructure that we require for all utilities, water, sewer, drainage, and roadways. So although we have some other standards, most everything is captured within these standard construction details. So by the subdivision ordinance, these are uh, any changes have to be uh, approved and adopted uh, by the Planning and Zoning Commission. So these were last amended in 2021, and we were not making any wholesale changes or too many, uh, but we had some very specific changes that we wanted to uh, bring to you. Uh, really two significant ones, but the first one is really what is prompting this is to modify uh, new roadway construction to include an asphalt pavement standard in addition to our concrete standards. And the other is to basically include a standard project sign uh, that contractors would construct uh, for all of our roadway capital improvement projects that we do. So the, the first and most significant one is this change to asphalt pavement. And I, I have the examples, but uh, the reason we're including this um, after many discussions over this past year that did actually start uh, approximately one year ago at the City Council Strategic Visioning Workshop, uh, it was talked about and brought up as a topic uh, that a lot of the developments um, not only use asphalt pavement, uh, but a lot of the projects that we have done, Main Street and some others, it's been very apparent when we have uh, maintenance or the biggest thing is having reconstruction of the roadways when we do overlays, uh, that they can be rehabilitated very quickly over two or three days or even like you've seen overlays on Broad Street at night um, and with very minimal traffic impact. And basically our concrete roadways that we're having to do significant maintenance on, Broad Street, Debbie Lane, and Matlock, uh, it's been observed that just panel replacements, not only are they extremely expensive, uh, we have to close down lanes, the maintenance department does, and that may go on for weeks while we do these panel replacements and cure time, and it's a big impact. So it was talked about that where it was possible that we, that we adopt this at least as an option and really looking more to make this our, our standard specifically for uh, certainly for our smaller streets, residential and uh, some smaller collectors and then our arterials uh, that we construct, we will be doing a pavement analysis and getting geotech work and confirming that this asphalt pavement in the section we'll propose would be adequate uh, for the roadway and that use if we're going to use it. But it's been, it's been, I think there's been pretty good acceptance to the overlay, the thin micro overlay that's been done on Broad Street. Uh, Street Operations is about to do that again on Debbie Lane between Matlock and Walnut Creek Drive, and we will 
uh, have some panel replacements there, but they will do that again. And uh, so basically those are the, the, the big driving factors um, about actually uh, having that as some benefits to that. So after also after some of the, the places you just mentioned, uh, that was where we had some significant discussions on it at uh, uh, Norton Commons. It was, uh, we looked at a lot of the details about the intersections and what was working and what was not working, but, but how that curb and gutter and the, the asphalt pavement and some of the things they had done. So it's, it's been uh, just overall uh, pretty well received. So I, I just had the detail that we've uh, put a, uh, come up here for our local residential, which will be probably you know where it's most commonly used. Um, basically, we did a significant amount of research and have talked to a lot of different engineers and contractors and, and the, uh, over this past year. And what we're proposing is basically an, an eight-inch um, asphalt section being a, um, the uh, two-inch surface course uh, with the six-inch uh, base course. And all the asphalt that we will spec, we'll be using asphalt and that COG specifications for that and the most appropriate um, um, material mix uh, for these projects. Um, the other thing that's uh, come out, I, the, uh, you see over there in the note off to the right, this chip seal underlayment. Uh, that's a, a key thing that we found basically to go over the lime-treated subgrade that basically puts a good seal on that and then gives a good surface for the asphalt to bond to. And then we've increased our subgrade on these types of streets to our standard 12-inch uh, depth, which is what we use on a lot of arterials. And without getting too much, oh, we would still also have the concrete curb and gutters, as you see, with that section and then the asphalt between. So one of the points I wanted to make is that we've taken this and, and basically done the research and really made sure that, you know, there, there's the thought out there that we're, we're somehow just changing the asphalt to save money. And I know that's the case maybe in the past, but right now asphalt isn't significantly cheaper if it is at all uh, than concrete. It's these other benefits that I spoke about. And in fact, we've kind of gone to links to make sure that what we're constructing here, uh, the, the key is that if we get it constructed correctly, then if street operations has the maintenance budget to maintain it appropriately, that we can make the life of these, um, you know, it should meet the life expectancy uh, that we would have otherwise. The idea is that one of the things that we can do is when we maintain it or when it's maintained, it has more options to, to be maintained than concrete. Pretty much with concrete, you crack seal and you, pant, you replace panels. But when it gets uh, significantly, uh, ha has uh, subgrade issues like you've seen on Broad Street where, and Debbie Lane especially where you, you have the, the panels moving and you hear the thumps every time you cross a panel, there's just not much you can do about that without replacing the street. And that's one of the advantages of asphalt when you do overlays and, and have different maintenance methods, you can really basically rejuvenate the pavement. The key is it does have to be kept up with and done on a regular basis. You can't 
It's not just maintenance, as maintenance-free as concrete is. And so the other roadway that you're, uh, would be fairly uh, familiar with are our, our four-lane divided roadways. So we're basically proposing just a thicker asphalt section after talking to a, um, a, a lot of different um, people in the, the Texas Asphalt Association. Really, it's about the subgrade prep and, and having that you can add, keep continue to add thickness on your asphalt, but it's a flexible pavement and it's, it's not going to do you, uh, it's not going to be the best expense or spending of money just to keep increasing that asphalt thickness. So we do have it an inch thicker for these uh, arterial roadways with the 12 inch subgrade and um, but the one of the differences is we're concerned about with asphalt is very common is uh, turning movements. Uh, when you have heavy trucks and, and just straight line and typical loading's okay, but turning movements are what pushes that material around. So what we're planning on is for our larger arterials, if we are going to use the asphalt pavement material, we will still plan to do concrete turn lanes and median openings so we won't be hopefully having the issues like, like you see on some places where it, you have the lateral movements where it pushes the asphalt um, and in cul-de-sacs as well uh, because you have trash trucks and turning and that it's almost impossible to, to maintain that. Uh, so th those are our general ideas and again that's the section we would propose. These are the two I pulled out but you certainly have all of them in the standard details. And then this is the last thing that I included. These are, this is the sign that's out on Daymire Road uh, that we did for the Daymire project. Uh, we have uh, a few things that we want to improve with uh, just the visual, but essentially that's the essence of the sign. And so once we develop that, we're going to adopt that into our standard so we can just reference that every time on these projects and have them all look the same and have the contractors uh, uh, just use our standard construction details. So this is what we've included, basically taken that and used some other cities and, and got their specs and, and detailed that out to include in our standard details. And so with that, I'll be happy to uh, back up to any of these slides and, and look at them or ask, and certainly answer any questions. Thank you, Mr. Kaufman. If you allow me, I'll go ahead and open the public hearing uh, so we can move through that and then we can get to questions and comments from the commissioners. So at 8.06, we will open up the public hearing for item number 24-5835. We don't have one? Okay. It's on my report, so. I was curious about that. Okay. All right. We don't have a public hearing, so we'll move the questions. So, Grammy, let me ask you a question, Mr. Kaufman. So, I want to be sure I'm understanding what you're, what you're proposing. So, in a neighborhood, once the street needs repair, it would be done with blacktop asphalt. Is that correct? No. Are you talking about an existing concrete street? An existing concrete street. No, it would, it would only be, if we were going to, you say repair, if we were going to reconstruct it like we do some reconstructions, yes, the idea would be that we reconstruct it, well, that will be the new standard to reconstruct an asphalt. So one of the streets we're going to do is Elizabeth Lane. Uh -huh. That's a the CDBG project. 
that would be the intention that we would remove all of the concrete and but we would be putting back just like you saw the curb and gutter and yes with the asphalt section that's correct okay and then for repairs that are current concrete on major thoroughfares as an example you did asphalt on broad street mm -hmm. in a section of that that would be the standard moving forward no, that that is that okay, is. Okay, I'm completely messed up on this. Thing. No, no, no. You're, 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 you're it, it, it's nuanced. So, so I want. It's kind of hard to be clear. So on Broad Street, these that we're doing on Broad Street and Debbie Lane, they were paved with a full section of concrete right. out there. What we're doing is to basically we. It is maintenance, but we look at it as last-ditch maintenance because what we're doing is we're doing a micro overlay basically putting it is not typical to that's not how we typically right. repair an asphalt I mean a concrete street is to go overlay it with asphalt right but in this case it's a good option simply because we don't have the funds to replace all of that at one time mm -hmm. so it is an improvement so we are still going to do that on Debbie and maybe another section of Broad just to get some more life out of the pavement. But those are typically one-offs that we're just doing to, to get down the road a little bit further. The plan is like for Broad Street that we're going to fund to completely reconstruct it. Uh, that is the plan to do the main lanes in asphalt if the Geotech supports it and we would be taking up what you see out there all in concrete taking up all the panels basic full reconstruction just like we would any other street you would just see the asphalt surface instead of a concrete surface so when we go from fire station number three to 360 and we reduce we widen that road what, tell me what's going to happen there in that area that is correct we would typically have the asphalt main lanes and the concrete turn lanes and median open so all the concrete will come out Yes. You'll do all asphalt? Yes. Okay. All right. So new roads that are being laid will be asphalt? Correct. Okay. And do you know the uh, length of time in which you would have to come back and overlay that asphalt? Uh, no, we don't. That's we, we only have a lot of the asphalt streets that we have were not done with this section. So we don't we know we're doing something better than has ever been done in the past. Mm -hmm. That would get into our street operations and maintenance. Uh, there's just too many variables and different things they can do. But you have all kinds of uh, and Blake knows more than I do probably about all the micro sealing and the chip sealing and the, the overlays. Um, the idea, though, in general, we would practice all of those on a regular basis on a maintenance plan to keep them in good repair. A lot of the asphalt that we have, we have to try to maintain them, but sometimes they're already on that downhill slide. So I don't have all of those exact options, but the, the plan is to, to do an active maintenance every few years, whatever it needs, and not try to not do anything for many years and then come back and do significant maintenance. Okay, one last question. So when a new neighborhood is being developed and the infrastructure is being done for the roads, what will be the new standard? That, that would be the asphalt. It would be the asphalt? Yes. Okay, all right, thank you. To add some context to what Ray was saying, he's absolutely right. For an asphalt road, 
you wouldn't have to do like a complete removal like a concrete road. You could mill off the top two inch surface and just replace it if the base is in good working order. So that makes it a lot faster. It, it, it actually could, can make it more cost effective to get things repaired and it just it, it can look like a, you know, in seven, six to eight years it may need it and you go through, you do that two inch mill and put it back and it looks like the road looked like when you, when you changed it out. So I like the fact that we're adding the asphalt standards. I think for the local streets, it's great. It's a great move. Uh, it could be very cost effective for the city to move that direction and get out of concrete because of all the issues we have with our existing subgrade around here. Um, Raymond, for the bigger roads though, mm -hmm. is it safe to say that the geotech and the payment report are gonna dictate which way you guys go, whether it's asphalt or concrete on them? Because it's hard for me to see a six-lane broad street being done in asphalt. Understood. I'd be wrong, but it's hard for me to see that. No, understood. That that conversation uh, is most most critical on uh, Heritage Parkway between Main Street and 287 that we have funded right now, and that is the question before us. <laughs> and so we are about to begin design on that, and we will get the geotech report, and we will work with the uh, transportation subcommittee um, we have had several discussions with the uh, transportation subcommittee on this topic. And so even though we've talked about and understand, we've, we've actually expressed as a staff, since we haven't, this would be one of our, well, this would be our first one. We haven't had much experience with it. We would really like to get some under our belt before we pave a, you know, uh, Heritage Parkway that's a significant truck route. But our comments have been because of the, because we just redid uh, Heritage on the eastbound, I mean the westbound side, and they, we've, I guess a lot of time has been spent out there doing panel replacements in the condition. They just really like the idea of once we get the asphalt down, even if it needs repair, like you said, if we have concrete turn lanes and you just have two lanes of asphalt, I like the idea of being able to just take all that up, like you said, in in, in very timely manner. Not only our issue out there is, like you said, a, a, the road the way that it is, but the truck traffic too. Yeah, the traffic. So, on the road. so we are mm -hmm. going to be forced to answer that question. Uh, it probably in one of the most, you know, heaviest situations we would have. Uh, that's probably one of the most, you know, that that would be a place where we would be most concerned with truck traffic. So we're going to work with the uh, Weir, and, uh, Weir and Associates as the consultant on that. And so we will get a geotech report and we will work with that. We will talk to the subcommittee and we will work that through before we, like you said, just we're not just making a decision to put asphalt down into your thought. We have to be out there fixing it once a year simply because truck traffic destroys it. So we will, we will, we will do a lot of research before we put that down and make sure that could work as a section. And the other the other understanding is, I mean, I know that the work that TxDOT does, you, you can build a section that will work, but whether that's cost effective, you know, more, I, mean, I know there's reasons that, that TxDOT does it and you're basically, your subgrade becomes, you know, what we build as a concrete street might actually be the subgrade for 
some of the TxDOT roadways and you would have a whole other street on top of that. I don't know that that's cost effective for a city street. No. Uh, it's, it's too much up front. So we'll be exploring, we'll be exploring that in the, like I said, Heritage will be the first one. Well, Broad Street too, but Heritage, we're, we're further along. I mean, we, we're, we're, um, we'll probably be able to design that quicker than Broad Street because there's not as much to it. So we'll be getting to construction probably prior than, you know, earlier than Broad Street. Yeah, that's the concern with the asphalt section that I have on the bigger roads is the traffic is going to yes. play into the analysis. And on, on several jobs I've done, you end up having to treat, you know, 18, 20 inches. I've done a road where we had to treat 32 inches of the subgrade with lime before really? we could even build the road. So that would be my concern when they're doing this analysis that that asphalt section continue, or the, the treatment continues to get thicker and thicker depending on the traffic loading. Right. Because that's the huge difference. I mean, that is the difference between flexible asphalt pavement and your concrete pavement. So as we, as we get those reports and we get buried, if we get down to nitty gritty and very specific questions, yeah, we'll be looking for everyone's expertise if it's, <laughs> so I have no problem taking any, any thoughts to that. My only other comment on the asphalt stuff is, I think it's a great application to have, but it's very fickle. We all know that the, 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 the metrics and the, and the, what goes in to make the, the asphalt mix, mm -hmm. it can change drastically from one set to the other. That's just my only concern that if there's variation and not enough quality inspection and testing done on it, then we're going to be right back where we are with the concrete issues. Yeah, we've <clears> spoken <throat> quite a bit. We've worked with Texas bit. Uh, they did, they've done a lot of paving for us in the past, but, uh, we're coming to understand the difference in some of those mixed designs. And we've taken some classes with the Texas asphalt. Um, what is it? I forget what the Texas asphalt, is it paving association? Texapa. Yeah, Texapa. And uh, we've taken some of those classes and come to understand some of the mixed designs that are, you know, produced at the, at the plants and some of TxDOT's mixed designs. So um, I forget the names off the, top of my head, but I understand the different aggregates you have and, and there, there's certainly some different ones. And so that's my concern. If we were going to, uh, like you said, it's not just about the section. You want to make sure that you're getting the specific mix that you call for um, from there. My understanding is that most, uh, the most common, the, the textile mixes are what most of the plants produce. Yeah. It's, it's a pretty standard but I do know there is such thing that's literally called super pave. And with the, um, I don't know if it's different angular material or it's, it's, it's the different mix, but um, I know we've talked about that on some of the arterials that, you know, if it came to that, making sure that we, we had a better mix design. My last plug is I had to get some clarification on who, who's on the transportation subcommittee today. And, uh, I'd be happy to see an engineer sit on that subcommittee. So that's just my shameless plug for the day. <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> I, I need a clarification. Uh, just make sure I'm thinking this right. Uh, if the city does buy into this, will the next residential developments be instructed to put in these types of streets? Yes, sir. And I have a question for 
fellow member here. Is there anything in the uh, appraisal process now that, that gives a negative point if you're not on a concrete street? That's actually a good question. No. There's okay. no. Thanks. Commissioner Thompson, anything? No, I'm good. Okay. Thank you. Mr. Moses, Shaw? I have a question for you, Raymond. Mm -hmm. So new neighborhood comes in, the developer puts in the infrastructure, gets in the roads. At what point does the city become responsible for those roads? Because once the road goes in, construction begins with the trucks, mm -hmm. the concrete, trucks, everything that's coming in. Obviously that road is gonna need some repair. We have a two year maintenance warranty um, for material and workmanship. So we have the same issue with concrete streets. I mean, any, any street that sees any uh, work on it, uh, but it is specifically for workmanship and material. So if there's workmanship or material issue that we find the con once that two year, our practices, our, we have a two year maintenance bond or warranty. So when we hit the one year and nine or 10 months, we go do an inspection and put together a list that we send to the contractor and notify them that they have to come do that work under warranty and fix it. If builders or whoever's working in the neighborhood, if they do specific damage to the curbs or anything else, we require them to fix it as long as we know who that builder was. But that's the typical process that after two years, once those, once it's, you know, had time to not be new anymore and most of that neighborhood's built out, then we take acceptance of that and no, have no warranty after the two year period. Okay, so some residents could be three, four, five years in fully building out. Any concerns on the cost to the city once those two years are up? No, like I said, that's, we, we don't really anticipate the standard building of homes being doing any real more damage than there would on a concrete street. Um, I understand, I, I guess it's possible, but even with those, even with the equipment and everything, like I said, if they're going to cause problems because of our design and the way it's built, um, then that's really on the design. And we don't really believe that. Like I said, with the 12-inch subgrade, we believe we're building it such that, that the typical issues you have are chipped curbs and right. broken sidewalks, and that'll, that won't go away. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, sir. We're ready for a motion. I have another quick question. Yes. Uh, I'm sure we probably all wish that every residential street was already built this way, uh, as far as as far as repair costs. But has anybody run the numbers on what this? If we adopt this, what this might pan out in ten or twenty years as far as savings? No, simply because that's not the primary reason we're doing it, um, and I would say to Blake's point, we, we may get more experience and, and uh, change our sections. So we, we haven't done that. I mean, I agree that there probably will be some savings over the life, but it's really kind of apples and oranges because our, the, it might cost the same. I think that's to, to your point with the residential streets. It might cost the same to, main, to, to build broad and maintain it to the point the, the same cost of what it costs to build the concrete, but uh, like you pointed out earlier, if after we do a maintenance, you know, if we did an overlay, a mill and overlay on the 15th year and it basically became a brand new road, 
unlike the concrete that you can't really do anything, then even if it costs the same, it, it, it's, a more, it's a better value. It could bring a better value. So there's really too many variables for us to know uh, to do anything in detail. But there isn't, I have made it clear to developers and a lot of people, we're, we're not taking the approach that we're just simply doing a less than pavement section just to save the city money and that there will be problems with it in the future. Like you just said, 20 years from now, we'll be paying the price. And we're, we're trying to do our research and making sure that we're, we're doing it for uh, the reasons that are expected, that it, that it will have these uh, better maintenance uh, options and, and be a better, a better option for maintaining going forward. Mr. Chairman, before we go forward, just for my clarification, who sits on the subcommittee? On the count, the transport, it's the, tra yes. the council transportation subcommittee on local transportation issues. And the chair is uh, Casey Lewis. And uh, I believe it's Tamara Bounds and Todd Tenori. I think that, I think that's the three members. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Can we receive a motion? Make a motion to approve. Motion to approve by Vice Chairman Axon. I'll second. Second by Commissioner Goodwin. Please cast your votes. And that item passes 7-0. Item number nine, summary of city council actions. Real quick, Raymond, we appreciate your time tonight. Thank you, Mr. Chair. There was quite a bit there towards the end of 2023 and haven't even gotten through 24 yet, and there was quite a bit there as well. So we'll start first with the historic landmark overlay district regulations. Those were approved for the emergency building repairs. Diamond Head Estates, which was the PD Plant Development District that was recommended for approval by the Planning and Zoning Commission that was tabled by City Council. There was a desire to see some type of commercial activity integrated within the development and some additional design features and considerations. The South Mitchell Townhomes, that ultimately was approved at the first hearing and reading. I'll share a little bit more on that uh, with City Council's decision on January 8th when we get there. The huge one from 2023 was the Mansfield 2040 plan, and thank you all for that. That was tremendous, as mentioned, at the State of the City. The neighborhood design standards, I'll get to that as well. That was tabled until January 8th and temporary batch plant regulations that was approved. On January 8th, the neighborhood design standards that was presented and proposed by Jordan Drumgold that ultimately was approved. There were some additional modifications to those proposed standards that dealt with ensuring that there was an adequate separation between the taller dwellings that uh, could be allowed under the neighborhood design standards and buildings, I should say, and existing uh, detached single family homes, 
There were some additional considerations in terms of the paving materials for streets that were addressed as well, but all in all, pretty much a neighborhood design standards as presented to the Planning and Zoning Commission that was recommended for approval was approved. The data center was recommended for approval by the Planning and Zoning Commission. On the first hearing and reading, it was approved by City Council. So was the request for Pickler Nation, which was a mixed-use project on FM 917 on the west side of town. That was also approved in the first hearing and reading. And the South Mitchell Townhomes ultimately was approved with the addition of a commercial mixed-use overlay district over a portion of the property. And there was also some reconfiguration of some of the townhomes or orientation so that they face internally and not externally. And then last night, the data center was approved by city council. And the second hearing and reading of Pickler Nation that was approved as well. And I think that is all, and I'll pause it or answer any questions that you may have. All right, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Alexander. We'll move to commissioner announcements. Commissioner Thompson. You guys are in luck, I don't have any tonight. <laughs> commissioner Goodwin. None. Vice Chairman Axon. None. Commissioner Bennett. Commissioner Shaw. Commissioner Moses. I will say to each of you that uh, if you did not make the state of the city, I think our city manager and our mayor did an outstanding job in regards to informing the city uh, and the, um, the uh, residents as to where we're headed. Certainly some exciting news that took place there. I would also encourage each of you, if you have the opportunity and have the time, uh, I think there's a huge benefit in, in attending some of the council meetings because you really get to get an idea as to really how the council is thinking. And it's certainly been a benefit for me. And if you can find the time at some point to maybe attend some of those, I think you'll certainly see that there's a big benefit from doing that. So just wanted to suggest that to each of you tonight. Uh, staff announcements. Uh, there are no staff announcements, except that uh, our next meeting will be on Monday, February 5th. February the 5th. Thank you, sir. Okay. Item number 12. Motion to adjourn. Motion to adjourn by Vice Chairman Axon. Second by Commissioner Shaw at 8.30 p.m. Good night, everyone. Thank you for your time.